Hey everyone, this is Ben. I'm here today with Brian Levin, who is a designer that I have admired for a while. And I've been meaning to get him on the podcast to pick his brain about design topics and such. So I'm, I'm excited to present this, this conversation with him. So Brian, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. And uh, sorry for ignoring a question you asked me like three months ago about hiring designers. I figure this is a, a good way to just hack the answer to that question. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I asked you a hard question, and that, that's that's still a question I want to ask you. So, like, we, we won't start with it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's a thorny one. Fortunately, it's a little less relevant to us now. But anyway, maybe we'll start somewhere a little different. Which is, is there something ineffable about good design, like inexpressible, like not able to put into words, or can you deconstruct pretty much all good design into clear analytical principles? That is a good question. I think my gut reaction is that it is deconstructible. The part where I'm getting hung up on is a lot of times what is magic about software is the way it makes you feel. It can work a certain way, it can look a a certain way, and I feel like those are the parts you can deconstruct. But the way it makes you feel, it seems like it shares a little bit of the responsibility with the person using it. What's the problem they had in their life that you're trying to solve? Where are they using it? Perhaps how is it interacting with other parts of their life, either physically or other apps or just you know respecting their preferences right like their network speed the the hardware they're on so i feel like there's all sorts of parts to this that depend on the person receiving the design but as far as like the quality of an experience the way it works and looks i feel like all of that is roughly deconstructible so does that mean i can train pretty much anyone into being a great designer? I think maybe that question is kind of related to the question of can you teach somebody to have good taste? Because I think there is an element of that here. And I I actually am probably not smart enough to have a solid answer to that question. Can you teach someone to have good taste? But my hunch is that you could teach anybody through enough exposure and enough practice. Like there's certain other industries or fields or skills, like certainly you gravitate towards like athletics as things where, you know, maybe there's just truly a physical genetic boundary between good and great. Design, I'm not sure if that necessarily exists. So it seems plausible that someone who's sufficiently motivated could be taught to be great. But then, yeah. And we got to talk about like what is good and great. And that gets into this like more subtle taste or, or the subjective experience of people who are receiving that design, right? I think anyone could learn design. Do you feel like you started with good taste and then learned how to <laughs> nope. make things? No, <laughs> no, no. I dug back through some of my early work quite a while ago just to see where I started. And it is objectively bad like there's so many clearly incorrect decisions from color to typography to layout like there was nothing substantive there i guess you just get better through practice lots and lots of reps but no i started from a a a place of bad design why didn't look bad to you back then like if, if taste is the component, you just couldn't tell they were bad decisions and like now you have a more sophisticated eye? I think that's part of it. I also think there's this part of like as you're learning to make something, you start consuming the rest of the world in a very different way. Like if you want to become a writer, 
all of a sudden you start reading things very differently. If you want to become a filmmaker, you start watching movies differently, right? Recently, one of my experiments has been to make YouTube videos. And now all of a sudden I experience YouTube in a very different way. So I think the same thing happens in design. Like when you are using software, you are just using software. Like you're not actively considering the the process of using it. You're just using it to solve a problem in your life. But when you become a designer or an engineer or a product person, you start to shift. Like you no longer download an app store and just use it. There's always this meta analysis of, oh, this onboarding's weird. Hmm, why did they choose that color? This step feels funky. Oh, that was a little bit janky. Oh, they haptic there? Why did they haptic, right? Like there, this meta analysis enters the picture. So to answer your question, I think the reason I was started so poorly and just as a bad designer is I didn't have enough meta analysis of even thinking about like what is design, what is good design. I was just interested in making websites. And so then once you go down that road, then it's like, okay, now I'm going to pay attention to what I think a good website is. I just had a, a weird time of overlap where I was making things before I fully considered what a good thing in that area was. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It's it's reminding me of this video I wonder if you've seen from Ira Glass. The Gap. Where he talks about, what's that? Yeah, you know what I'm going to say? Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's uh, I, top of mind. I was just talking about this uh, on our podcast this week, actually. Oh, nice. So he's talking about... In the beginning, there's this gap between what you want to make and what you are capable of making. And often your taste leads your capability to create. I love that thing. And I think that's a great message to tell people because there's this long period where you're trying to make stuff and you hate it. And it falls short of your, of your aspirations. But the interesting thing to me is like, is thinking about your early work and how now you don't like it. But I, I wonder if back then you were like, nice, I nailed it. This looks awesome. I think back then I thought it looked good. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I really do think I, I had like some very fundamental <laughs> mismatches. It's really amazing that I, I managed to make anything. Yeah, I, I totally resonate with, with that concept of the taste sort of ability gap that Ira Glass talks about. You mentioned YouTube. And so I have to go on like a small rant here real quick or just a, a small thing, which is, so if you made me the CEO of YouTube, I think one of the first things I would do is put in our terms of service that you can no longer say in your videos that people should like and subscribe. I, it's, like, it's, like, it's like you're reading a novel and the author keeps being like, by the way, if you want to get more of my book, you should make sure to like go to this website. And like every time you hit a new chapter, mid-chapter, like, hey, yeah. by the way, uh-huh. you got to hit the bell so you get notifications when I put a new chapter. You know, what that reminds me of is, do you remember like deep web two days? Like or maybe 2010 to twenty. Are you going to say everything too right now? No. <laughs> remember when every single website and every single piece of content on the internet had like on Facebook, share on Reddit, share on StumbleUpon, tweet about it, post to Pinterest, and it was everything had these rows of social buttons. And now, if you encounter a website with those rows of social buttons, it has aged very poorly. It, it immediately feels lower quality. 
It feels spammy. It feels like this art, this content is trying to trick me to do something that I don't actually want to do. My suspicion is that YouTube is going through that same arc where YouTube was so new and people were so unfamiliar with the concept of even subscribing to a channel or even understanding that comments and likes contributed to that creator's growth that you needed the call to action. In the same way that in early days, you needed the call to action to freaking post to Facebook. But now everybody knows how to do it. You can remove the buttons. And I think in a few years, we'll see a lot fewer of those popovers, the, the bell dings, the be sure to like and subscribe call outs. I think those will go away. That's that's a good point. That sounds that sounds very plausible. I hope to me. it's true because I'm with you. It is <laughs> very annoying. Totally nice. That would, that would be great. Uh huh. How's your YouTube journey going? So I, I'm very new. I've just uploaded uh, a couple of videos, and it's been uh, interesting in a couple ways. One, it's very humbling because what I didn't realize is that the depth of YouTube analytics for video creators is as granular as you can possibly imagine like literally second by second YouTube will tell you if people care about what you have to say and so I had uploaded some some videos where I was doing like a design critique of some different products and I posted those to Loom and those Loom videos were getting hundreds of views I was like oh wow people actually are interested in this and engaged with this and so I cross-posted then to YouTube and then all of a sudden I get this graph of how many people actually watch all the way through. And it was very uh, shocking and humbling and perhaps I should have been more prepared to see what that cliff in the first 30 seconds would actually look like. That has put me in a position of feeling a little bit conflicted about my relationship with YouTube, even just a few videos in, which is clearly they optimize for certain things to happen in your video to keep people engaged. And I think what that does is it forces or, or, or puts pressure to create content that is a little more clickbaity, a little bit faster paced, jump cuts, lots of moving things in the first few seconds. Like I've, I've gone deep down the research rabbit hole of how to make good YouTube videos and very consistent advice is you have to constantly be switching shots, A-roll, B-roll, A-roll, B-roll, text overlay, title, graphic. And it those things are literally just tricking people's brains into staying engaged with the video for a few more seconds to boost that, that graph. And so I feel conflicted because on the one hand, I am a person who sees numbers and I like numbers to be bigger and go up. And so I'm very much tempted by, okay, my retention graph sucks. How do I make it better, right? On the other hand, I think that takes you down the path of optimizing for things that maybe I don't care about and might actually suck the joy of creating videos that I wanted to make in the first place. So that's uh, maybe a longer answer uh, than you're expecting, but it's very fun. I just feel conflicted about what to do next and I've been getting some advice from people and, and the advice really has rallied around, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? Do you want to have a million subscribers or do you want to just have fun and upload videos for a handful of people who actually care and will watch all the way through. And I'm still figuring that out. Um, the way I'm thinking about it is I need to upload a bunch more different kinds of videos to get a feel for if I even will continue having fun doing this, you know, past a month or two.
<laughs> so yeah, very much at the start of this, this journey, as they'd say. Have you ever uh, uploaded a video to YouTube? I have uh, a small handful, pretty, pretty minimally. Did you pay attention to those analytics? I have not. I like looked at like view counts and such, but I haven't okay. looked at the analytics. I'm sure they're horrific. Yeah. It's uh, eye-opening, but also pretty cool because you know you can see where people drop off, but it also shows you when people re-engage. So for example, you know, you imagine viewer duration over time, like it could only go one direction from a hundred percent to to zero percent. But it actually can go down and then back up. And what's happening is people scrubbing and skipping to a chapter marker, or they'll scrub and look for an interesting frame in the little popover on the track. And so you can actually very clearly see by the second, oh, that frame looked interesting to people. Um, so anyways, from like a storytelling point of view, if, as if you wanted to get better at storytelling, I found that graph useful to be like, oh, this is what people find visually compelling. This was an interesting chapter title, that kind of thing. If you're, if you're interested in going back and, and really doing a deep dive on, on your analytics. I think, yeah, probably not at this point. I was doing it for a little bit of that for like marketing for Tuple. I made a couple of videos about like pair programming and things like that. But I hired a marketer recently, at, so I hope to not go back into the YouTube minds myself. Yeah, yeah. I guess this would be perfect for marketing though, right? You could literally gravitate towards these spikes of what moments, what lines did we say, what screenshots of the product were most interesting to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You've been hosting a podcast for a long time. I think you're at 430 episodes plus at this point. That's uh, that's quite an outlier position to be in. I have to imagine most people get like maybe two episodes in, three. Ep- I actually I made a small podcast hosting service one time. Oh, our our bit was it was a podcast you publish via email. So the the maximum episode length was three minutes, and you had because you had to make it as an attachment. Right. To the email. There's like the 25 megabyte. Or whatever exactly. limit. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And okay. we would we would actually reject the recording if it were even lo- like you know if it were one second longer than three minutes we would just say no. Wow. Okay. How'd that the go? Service we called it we called it briefs. Um. It it had some it got some legs actually like it, it had a little bit of momentum for a while, but but then I realized I didn't really want to make a podcast hosting service like charging four dollars a month to people to try to like aspirational podcast. Basically, I got to work with a lot of aspirational podcasters, and it turns out that like. People want to have a podcast. They don't want to actually produce a podcast. People want to talk, but not edit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the thing with with our, this service was, you couldn't even edit. You know, like like I guess you could edit, but like most people would just like record on their phones and then send it in. So like it was this is like like the lightest version of podcasting possible, kind of. And even then, like pretty much everyone would stop after one episode at most. All that to say is you and I are like both like podcasting outliers because we've been at it for hundreds of episodes. So what is it do you think about you that makes you keep going? It actually has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with having a co-host. I feel like if this was a solo venture, it would have stopped a long time ago. I could almost prove that because most of my solo projects in the same vein, like interview projects or, or writing projects, those always come to an end. But there's something very, uh, I don't know what the right word is, motivating, disciplined about having a co-host who depends on you and you depend on them. And so I have had uh, two different co-hosts throughout the eight or so years I've been podcasting. And in both cases, we we leaned on each other, right? Like some weeks, one person's just having an off week, but 
gosh dang it, this other person needs me to hop on a call at this time or we have a guest lined up. We just got to knock it out. And, you know, part of that is also finding just a rhythm and routine between the two of us where hopefully it still feels fun and we enjoy our, our time together so that it's not actually like, oh, we're getting together to, to make a podcast. It's more like, oh, I get to talk with a friend about design and it just so happens that we're recording and, and sharing that with the world, hopefully. But not every week feels like that. We have our, our bad weeks for sure. How about you? Because you said you're five years in? Uh, something like that. Four or five? So yeah, yeah what Hundreds keeps you Hundreds of going? episodes for sure. Uh, actually, you know, as you were talking, I, I realized it's the same thing, I'm pretty sure. Like all, all of my solo projects of any kind, just about, uh, have been abandoned. It's my joint efforts that actually last. It's a good reminder when I get tempted by this idea of like, I'm going to go be an indie solo founder, hacker type persona, right? Like you look at maybe like the Peter Levels kind of persona, right? I don't think I could do what he does. And it's for this exact reason. Yeah, I know I couldn't. So I, I, I struck out on my own for a little while. And I did like, I ended up making a course. And the course did well, like monetarily, sold a lot of copies of it, like made a big pile of money. And I didn't find it like really rewarding or enjoyable because I just am not, a, I'm not built for solar projects. I, I love being on a team. I love people around. It's just, it doesn't work for me. I got to imagine the course business is very hard too. Like very spiky, right? It's definitely very spiky for almost everyone. I think there are some exceptions if like you can make, uh, there, there are some evergreen things that sell and sell, but for the most part, yeah, I would say it's very spiky. Yeah. That seems like a rough emotional roller coaster. Yeah. I mean, I, so I didn't do it for so long that like I had quite the experience. Like, I mean, I had the experience of launching the thing, a big spike in the first few days, immediately tapering off to a much lower level. And then that's around when I gave up and went and got a job. Okay. <laughs> and went back to, to normal life. So I, I think if I had been trying for longer to make course creation a business that I was trying to like support myself with, yeah, that would have been a lot more like pretty, pretty mentally draining because it's, it's always, it's, it's hit based. It's like, what's the next thing you're going to do? Right. Or you can try to sell subscriptions. Yes. That's yeah. the angle. Yeah. So, well, so you can try to sell subscriptions, but like to, I, I actually have built a subscription based content business in the past. And that has its own problems because it's kind of like, well, to justify the subscription, you sort of always, you have the same thing where it's like you, you, have, another, you have a content treadmill anyway because why would people stay subscribed if they've seen all your stuff or have downloaded all the stuff? So it's, The, the it's content cool. treadmill is, seems like avoid, it's worth avoiding at all costs. Some people are obviously very successful there and make millions of dollars YouTubing, but you, you watch any behind-the-scenes conversation and they're just burnt out like crazy. Yeah. So I, I've been on the content treadmill like once before in a significant way. And aside from this podcast, which I don't find unpleasant to work on, like quite the opposite, I have steered clear of committing to anything like that because I, I know the trap. Because the world will, will reward you typically. Like you're like, I'm going to come out every week with a whatever or like every, every so often we're going to make this. It's like typically that's, that will work. Like that, that's good marketing. People like it. And so it's like it's, I've experienced like, oh yeah, this is working. Cool. The numbers are going up. People are into this. And then I've also experienced the like, wow, even if I make a month of these at a time, it's still just one month until I have to think about this again and then do a bunch of work to produce, produce the next batch of the things. And 
And if I look at my video analytics, it turns out they're only watching the first 20 minutes of it. <laughs> Don't watch the or analytics. seconds. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. Although I feel like there has been maybe a tiny, at least in this like content creators who I subscribe to, the newsletter writers, the the YouTubers, I've noticed maybe a little bit more willingness to take some days off and people not overreacting. I feel like maybe there's a little bit of a global sort of nod. You deserve a break. Take some time off. We're not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. That, 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 that's, that's a pretty sensible way of doing it. I think if you're, the, the, if you're like the one person show kind of content creator, I think it, you probably have a lot of leeway with your, your audience because they are fans. Right, right. Yeah. It makes me glad, like seeing, like seeing content creation as a business, it makes me glad that I sell software. Yes. Uh-huh. We can charge every month for that. And yeah. like working on that does not feel like a contents log. It's, it's different each time as opposed to like kind of making more of the same stuff. Agreed. Agreed. You have a ton of side projects. You're doing a lot of stuff. You're writing, you're making videos, you're doing design critiques, you're podcasting. You have in the past started companies, but you work at GitHub now. So you're inside a fairly large organization, which is inside an even larger organization. And you ended up there via more or less an aqua hire, I believe. Is that a fair characterization? Right. Yeah. So, how is it that that's not chafing, and you're and you're still enjoying it? I mean, it does at times. Like I think there are pretty regular waves of one thing not feeling right and another thing going great. And I think over time, over the years, I've kind of become accustomed to noticing what part of a wave I'm in for any particular project. So for example, last year, I think I went six months without touching a side project, not a single thing. Maybe I wrote a blog post or like maybe, um, but otherwise the podcast, I don't even count the podcast because that's that's so, it's so mechanical. It's on such a schedule that I, I don't even consider that. Like it's just part of my life. It's like brushing your teeth. It's like, oh, Monday we record a podcast. So everything else, I, I took a huge break from. The other thing too I, I've found is the work that I do at GitHub is just so fundamentally different from all of my other side projects. They're all related to design and technology, I suppose. But at GitHub, I'm working with a team. I'm working on bigger things, higher level things, long-term things. And the design crit, for example, that I'm doing is a few hours usually skewing very visual, usually very tactical, just looking at new problem areas that I've never thought of before. So they scratch entirely different itches in my brain. If I was signing up for a four-week contracting gig, I don't think I could do that. That would feel way too much like going from one job to the next between 5 and 6 p.m., which is not ideal. But right now, they feel different enough that it's, it's like I get to go do this other fun thing for an hour. To answer, they chafe, but hopefully they're different enough that it keeps things feeling interesting. Well, I guess I'm curious. Like, so when you think of your career future of like where you're going to spend your time, your work-related time, are you hoping to move up the design ladder in the GitHub world or something similar to that? Like. You move more towards. Are you asking know, if I'm about designer. to quit my job? <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not. But I'm like, is I mean, is that is that the is that the roughly the right direction, or do you would you guess that you end up starting another company at some point, or something, or something else entirely? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like 
one thing that's that's on my mind right now is I love being an individual contributor designer. And at a certain level, it just becomes really ambiguous how to keep growing in that role from a mostly from like a compensation point of view. You know, you reach this point where the next promo, yeah, you can make like a little bit more money, but the responsibilities added on top of that almost outweigh it. It doesn't feel worth it. And so you find quite a lot of designers who will hit like a senior to staff level and they'll just kind of park and and do good work, but get frustrated at the fact that they they aren't progressing at the same rate as perhaps like a manager where the manager, it's so clear, okay, you're managing a few people, you're managing a lot of people, you're directing a group, then you're a VP on and on. You can climb your way up through the management chain. I don't think there's a good parallel still for for individual contributors, even, even in organizations that say, well, a principal designer is equivalent to a director. I think they're very different actually still from a from an influence point of view or, or probably also from a compensation point of view. So for me personally, it's like, am I comfortable with that? Because I like being an individual contributor. I don't think I'm ready to manage maybe someday. I don't know that I would be good at it because I just like getting into the work too much. I think I would actually be pretty annoying. So at GitHub, I, I'm happy to just be doing the best work I can possibly do and just try and get better. Just try and get better and better, ship more stuff, keep learning. But zooming out a bit, I have a little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder about starting a company. So I started started a company called Spectrum in 2017 with two other friends. We worked on it for a year and a half before joining GitHub. And we learned a ton. Uh, I've learned a lot more in, in since joining GitHub. And there's just always this thing in the back of my mind that's like, I want a second shot on goal. I want to see if I can actually pull it off, knowing what I know now. So I don't know. That maybe is in the future too. But it's always hard to say because right now it's just I just want to keep getting better as a designer. And the leaving to start a company is a huge distraction from that. So I just got to figure out, do I want to get better at starting a company and learning how how to grow a business, or do I want to keep becoming the best individual contributor I can possibly be? And if that's the case, then maybe GitHub is a good place to to stay for a while. Right. Yeah. That's that's an interesting distinction in that like you're probably actually not maxed out, but you're at probably strongly diminishing returns for for like design skill improvement in terms of how much it would help you start a company. I think I have a lot of room to grow with strategic thinking, product thinking. And maybe even figuring out how to tone down how important I think some of the design craft is when it comes to starting something from scratch. Oh man, that sounds like a, a, a inflection point of design maturity to me. <laughs> yeah, I still feel like I skew towards the immature where it's like, no, I just want everything to look really good. And other people are like, yeah, but we need it to like make money. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It r- sounds familiar to me because I, I was a programmer for like a decade or so before I started Tuple, and was was obsessed with great code yeah. and test coverage and beauty and you know maintainability and all this, and I think there was a turning point for me too where I started getting more pragmatic about it, 
and more about like, this is fine for now. Like we need to just ship this and like find out if anyone cares or like see if we have anything here. Like is, is there even a product here that people want to pay for? Well, it just got less precious about the code has to be perfectly beautiful. That's what matters most. Were you forced into becoming more comfortable with that or was it a sort of longer term self-realization about what, what matters? I mean, I guess I was kind of forced by the constraints of we had a certain amount of runway and the best way, like what felt like the, our best opportunity for success was to get things in users' hands quickly and find out like, is this, like I had, I had de-risked the idea it felt like, like I was confident people would pay for a thing that sounded like what tuple we wanted tuple to be, but I was not yet sure that we could make that thing. Like if, if when we delivered it, it would actually live up to the dreams. And so it was like, okay, if we're going to, like we, we have to find out as quickly as possible if we are on the right track. And so I was just like, it doesn't matter how beautiful the code is. Like it's going to matter sort of over the long term. Like we don't want to totally like paint ourselves into a corner with a maintainability nightmare showing up later. But yeah, does this thing need to look beautiful at a code level? No, not really. Yeah. Is that still a bug in your brain that, that keeps you up at night that you want to jump back into the code and fix stuff? Or how do you get comfortable with knowing that you've made this trade-off, you've sort of sacrificed this one thing in service of the other? Like giving up coding, you mean? Yeah, or even being a programmer who now works with other programmers who might be doing things in a diff- like a way that you would have done differently. Sure, yeah. Um, it is still occasionally a brain bug. I talked, I was talking about this with my co-founders maybe a couple months ago where I had kind of like pushed back on something that someone was saying. And we had this interesting moment where like, I sort of noticed like, you know, if I weren't technical, I would have no thoughts on how to do this. And I wouldn't be giving you a hard time about like, should we do a versus B? It's only because I'm technical that I have like enough knowledge about this, that I have like an opinion on it. Whereas if I were a non-technical CEO, I would just be like, "Yeah, you're the you're the you're the, you're the coder. Just get it done." And so sometimes that's useful because I ha- hey, I have I do have like a ton of programming experience and like I can maybe offer some thoughts on things. But it's also can be maybe tempt me into worrying about details that are better just like delegated to people that are much closer to the problem. Do you think that managers in a past life should have been an expert in their craft, or is it okay to have? leaders who have never programmed or leaders who have never designed? Maybe not never, but maybe designed for a few years before switching into the management track. Yeah. I I haven't thought about this question super deeply, but my initial reaction is pretty strongly towards the former practitioner's side. Yeah. Yeah. That feels right to me. For example, I've worked with two different CTOs, one of whom was like this unbelievable technical badass and I was just like, wow, I just want to copy your whole brain. And another who just like I was not impressed with his technical chops. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty different experience working for them. It was, it was much better working for someone who I respected technically. Was the second person a good people manager at least? Or was that also... Uh, yeah, that was also kind of lacking. Okay. So maybe I wonder what it would have been like if that person was the best people manager, helped right. you grow your career, but they couldn't code for shit. You know, what would that have been like? Yeah, it's... It's a good question. I mean, imagine as the team gets bigger, the like hands-on coding chops probably become somewhat less valuable. Like you're so far from needing to be an individual contributor and your problems probably become almost completely dominated by people problems. 
So I, I could see how that would like, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't pay off so much to have the coding chops. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, but there is something very subtle about knowing that you're working from someone who's been through what you're going through. This person has been in the trenches and in, in a past life, even if it's maybe aged, they did good work. You know, there's something intangible about that that I, I like. And it, it feels like if you're running a software company at like a management level and you can't make software, that just feels that feels weird to me. It feels weird. Like, yeah, it, yeah. I don't think that that doesn't sound like that sounds like something that could possibly work. But my guess is that like your ceiling is probably a bit lower. Like it's probably not quite as good. Like on average, it's probably not quite as good. Or maybe that the top of what you could achieve is maybe not quite as quite as good. Like I think like the fact that like Toby, the, the CEO of Shopify, like is a programmer and like still writes code and is like clearly still has technical chops. That probably really impacts that organization a lot. Like it's probably like I just picture like there's probably just like dozens of downstream effects of that reality that help like being a good like that make being a programmer at Shopify better. What do you think would be like one of the the more important downstream effects? My first guess would just be there's like real empathy at the top for the challenge of it and like what is what is required of it. It's less likely that decisions are coming down from the top that negatively impact programming productivity. Yeah, I like that. I think I agree. Yeah, That's, that sounds right. I think it can be hard to explain to somebody like, no, you we can't just have a fixed scope and a fixed deadline and a fixed quality bar. You can tell somebody that, but if they haven't actually tried to produce a thing, I'm not sure that would yeah. really resonate. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> yeah, right. So sorry. Yeah, and I also feel like if I were like a frontline, like a like a bottom of the org chart, you know, developer at Shopify, and I would see like Toby tweeting about like his side project and like sharing some code and stuff, like I would just feel like, oh, this is like this person's like me. They they get me. Like I, I would maybe assume good intent in a place where I, I might not otherwise, just because I, I can sort of feel this affinity for this person where we have like a, a, a similar background. Yeah, I wonder if it, to that point, if there's an element of, well, I guess this is what you just said, is like feeling like one of us. It closes the gap of some far away know-it-all leader. It's like, no, they're, I can see their commits. I think I would have done that differently. Like, you know, you could probably actually imagine, okay, this is a little bit more of an even playing field. They just are better at all this other stuff on leading and building and growing that I'm not. But at least on this coding part, like we could go toe to toe. There might be something fun and and endearing about that. Totally. I mean, I I felt that firsthand. I, I applied to this company called ThoughtBot and I came in for an interview and I was interviewing with the CEO and he was like, oh, sorry, like I'll be with you in one minute. I'm just like, I just want to get this test to pass. Yeah. And I was like, all right. The CEO is like hands-on writing code when I got here. Like that's cool. Like I'm I'm into this. That feels good. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. So maybe so maybe you start a thing someday, probably with some people because you don't want to do the solo efforts. Can't do it but solo for now. No. Get the yeah yeah yeah. It's I don't, I don't know. I can't imagine that that wouldn't work for me at all. But you know, I feel like everything is a little bit of a surprise too. We might meet each other again in a year and I'll be a, a proper YouTube influencer saying smash like and subscribe every few minutes and uh, my life will be very tragic if that's the case. <laughs> but who knows? Full of, but, it'll be, but think of how many jump cuts it will have. Oh, so many jump cuts. <laughs> that, those first 30 seconds are going to be so engaging. I'm gonna, that retention graph is going to look so flat. It's going to be great. 
It's so interesting. I, that that graph is now going to be in my head as I experience people's like attempts to maintain my attention for the first few seconds of a video. I think you can think about it in literally every other part of your life. Like every ad you see, every TV show you watch, every conversation you have, the way any lecture begins, the way a song begins, like, oh my God, it's just everywhere. But I often find like there's still a lot to to appreciate in the world that doesn't care about that, right? Like you can just tell when somebody is very intentional about sort of gaming those first few seconds of an interaction. Do you think it's harder to make great software than to make great versions of other things like a great building or a great meal? Is there something uniquely hard about software? It's an interesting question and it's just maybe impossible to answer because I've never done other things. But recently I was talking with some friends who are industrial designers and they're, they're very good industrial designers sort of doing well in their field. And we talked about this difference between software and hardware. And I came away feeling so thankful that I get to work on software because it feels so much easier. From the point of view of if you ship something that is broken, you can fix it. Hardware is just a fundamentally different beast. And there's a lot more thought and care that has to go into how is this thing going to not only feel, but how is it going to age? How is it going to be repaired by somebody that we will never know using tools that we can't predict? Software, I feel like, of course, has its own complexities, but it always has, at least internet-connected software, has this beautiful quality of, we can fix it. We can push a change and the customer will see that either instantly or after an update, right? Not everything's like that. There's software in your dishwasher that you got to get perfect the first time, but internet connected software, I feel like we have this really wonderful advantage. And so I suppose it makes me appreciate the industrial designers and architects of the world who have to do a lot more sort of front loading and understanding how something is going to work over a long period of time. Hmm. So then do you think the average quality of internet-connected software is higher than other things? Like because you can change it, do you feel like that it, it converges or like it increases, it iterates towards an incremental correctness, as you might say? Uh, I don't know. I, I find the average state of software to be not that good. Yeah, and that's how I feel too. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's something there. But it definitely feels not as good, but not as good in slightly different ways. Like, sure, there's there's bugs or it doesn't work correctly at this viewport. It wasn't responsive. I don't know. There's all these all these things. But it's rather the freedom to build anything leads us to just overcrowd every piece of software we ever make, right? Like, you add more features... More features creates more bugs, busier interfaces, does too much stuff, the stuff doesn't work well together, and you end up with just bloated software. So yeah, maybe bad in a different way. And I don't know how to avoid that. Hmm. I feel like the bad that I experience is, is probably usually less often that it is full of too many features and more that I feel like I feel like the problems that I see in software, if I sat down with the person that made it and explained why I thought this particular thing was bad, they would totally understand it. And they would and it would and it wouldn't be like, hey, there's too many buttons on this page. 
it'd be like, do you see how it's really hard to tap this because it's too small? Like, do you see on my phone, like, can you see like that this is little? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And so I feel like the gap for me in most software is as simple as like the person making this didn't just like stop and think about it a little bit harder and like have a little bit more empathy for the person using it. Yeah, but there's a little bit of a, a fuzzy area there because it's sometimes not even the person who implemented it. Like a lot of times the person who is designing or building a thing knows all of its problems as it's going out the door and you have a roadmap and you have OKRs and you have managers saying, all right, time to move on to the next phase. And you're like, but what about this? This was bad. This needs to be polished. This doesn't work quite right. Uh, put it on the backlog, right? So there's also like an organizational process problem at play here that I feel like isn't. it's not useful to blame the person who implemented it because they are, you know, in an ideal case, doing the best that they can do within the constraints of whatever their organization is. I don't know if that should be an excuse or not, but I think that's probably what's happening more often than people just not caring. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't know. That meant kind of an impossible question to actually answer. Yeah, yeah. Let's go survey everybody. <laughs> do you care <laughs> or does your organization suck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly do wonder that sometimes. Like there's times I really, I really wish I could sit down with a lot of people and just be like, "What happened here? Like, t- yeah. tell me. Are you proud of? Do this? you know this is bad? <laughs> yeah. Are you proud of this? Yeah. I honestly want to ask that of like people sometimes. Just like, are you happy with this? Do you, did you think this was good? Am I just seeing things you didn't see, or like, did you do you know it's bad and like you just couldn't get to it? I have this headset that I use for when I'm playing games. It's like a wireless headset, and so it has a battery in it, and the battery will beep to tell you that it's low about three minutes before the headset dies, which seems fine. You're like, yeah, we added a warning so you can swap the battery. Plenty of time to swap the battery out. Except that 80% of the time, I'm actively doing something in a game when the beep goes off. And like I play like, you know, like real-time first-person shooters. Like I'm in the middle of like a competitive match and I hear deet, deet, deet. I'm like, oh God, I'm about about to to lose sound. (laughs) And and I'm not going to be able to hear anything and I can't swap out the battery because I'm in the middle of a thing. And it's like, if you just made this happen like... 15 like 30 minutes and then right. 10 minutes like like this would have been probably a pretty easy thing to think like, but it, it feels like it feels it feels like the kind of thing that if you had tested this with almost anyone or like thought about it for a little bit longer you would realize like oh wait a second three minutes is not enough warning for this battery indication well this gets into a different area which is most people don't build tools that they themselves use and it's one area where I feel incredibly lucky. Speaking of what do you want to do next, like being able to work on something that you use yourself is really fun. So I did this at, at Facebook and now at GitHub. I use GitHub every day regardless of whether or not I work at GitHub, right? And uh, my co-host on the podcast, he works at YouTube and he loves watching videos on YouTube and on and on. And then there's people who are solving problems for different customers and they've never experienced that problem themselves. That's amazing. I'm so glad (laughs) that we have people solving problems that they themselves don't have. But I wonder if that is the case and, you know, for this head headset scenarios, like I wonder how many gamers designed that headset. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you'd hope that 
that would be a big overlap. Like you would want you would want to hire the engineers that also play games, but I could see how you might not. It might it's hard to find people. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, if you don't have that, then surely you're going to do some user testing, right? You're going to like oh, hand out some prototypes and get some now feedback. Now that's a bold and, assumption. <laughs> <laughs> you user tested this, right? Oh yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I asked I asked my uh my 13-year-old cousin. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. All right, I have a I have like a kind of in the trenches question for you. I'm curious how you feel about configuration options in products. So we'll have these sometimes we'll have these debates. We're talking about like a building a feature. And some people think it should work in this way, and some people should think it should work in that way. And so inevitably someone goes, Well, should we have a setting and like let users pick between these different options in the preferences? Do you have a way of thinking about that kind of question. Like there's part of me that always kind of like recoils at the idea of like more user configurable settings because it feels kind of like, well, we didn't we didn't really make a decision here. We just kind of like punted. And and you know, clearly at the limit, dozens or hundreds of like user settings, it's gonna lead to a nightmare of like, you know, maintainability and understanding someone's configuration and all that. But also User configurability is kind of great in a tool you're using a lot. Like it's nice to be able to like you know rearrange the furniture, turn things on and off, put things over here versus there. Any any thoughts about this this challenge? It would always for me start with like who's the customer and what's the tool we're building and what's the setting for, right? Let's let's say developers because yeah, you, we so, both make tools for developers. So so then we get to scope and and this is where we get to have fun is building tools for developers who skew. Who skew more curious, skew early adopter, skew the kind of brain that likes to look under the hood, which is very fun. This is a good question. I don't know. I, I also have the same sort of allergic reaction to let's just make a checkbox for it. You know, generally, I think a good design principles have great defaults or sensible defaults is perhaps a better way to phrase that. Like, it should work pretty damn good for most people, but the ability to eject from some of those decisions is a good thing. So that's mostly a non-answer to your question. I, I don't know. That's a hard problem. When should something become a setting or or not? This is going to be stuck in my head because I I, I got to have a, a a framework for like how do you even make that decision? I'm not sure I have one. Right. Yeah. It seems like there should be something like a framework. Like there should be some signs. Of like ah, this is a good a, a good candidate for certain reasons, because otherwise, yeah, it's right now. I, I don't have and I don't have an, I don't have one for that right now. I don't know when, because sometimes it feels fine, and I'm like, oh yeah, that should yeah, let's let, let, let's let people configure that. And sometimes I have just no idea. Well, there's things like light mode or dark mode, clearly a setting, privacy settings, like those things all make sense. But when it gets into how do I want this thing to be displayed, hmm. I can't even think of a good example here. Notifications, settings, I don't know. You can just go down the list. It's like, yeah, that should probably be a setting. Yeah, that should probably be a setting. So I think then for all these things where you can like, ah, yeah, that should probably be a setting. It's just like, how do we make sure we have the most sensible default configuration for those things? And honestly, like the default configuration it can be a battle, especially when you get into things like privacy and notifications. Like, do you by default, opt people into every notification on your platform. And a lot of companies do this. Obviously, you know they have a number and that number goes up whenever a new user who signs up gets 12 emails. 
and that experience sucks. And then the inverse also kind of sucks. Like you can sign people up for your product and say, all right, we're going to be super friendly. They have to opt into the emails that they want. But 80% of people never find that settings page. So they never opt into anything. And then they actually miss out on things that they might have been interested in, in learning more about. So then you build it into your onboarding flow and then your onboarding flow is, is overloaded. Yeah, this see, this is where I'm like, this is why software generally sucks is because you just start adding all of this stuff and we can't make a good framework for knowing when it should be a setting or not or or just built into the product or not. So we just overload all these different interfaces. Okay, it's a setting and it's in the onboarding and it's an email and and on and on we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that, that like repeats in my head about settings is like every Boolean setting doubles the number of configurations your product can be in. And so you can just see like how quickly that gets, that could potentially lead to madness. This is one of those things with GitHub where I am still discovering new settings today at the user level, at the repo level, at the organization level, and on and on and on because we have actually more levels than that. And the way that each particular setting not only overlaps but affects its children or, or even its parent upwards, the complexity there is impossible to understand like think about think about the merge box like the the box at the bottom of a pull request where you get the green button to merge the number of settings that create a matrix of possible states that thing can be in is mind-boggling most people don't understand just how many settings affect what shows up there uh, from the the organization level to to the the repo level just the complexity of designing that one interface and ideally, you land in a place where the user never notices, like, oh, there's a green button, click to merge, that's great. But over time, you just get these customer requests, someone needs this, an enterprise needs this, you need the ability to, to add reviewers, then you add checks, then you add, well, now we have a bunch of dependency updates, I wish those would auto-merge, right? Like, Then now we have a thousand engineers that are all running CI at the same time, they're constantly conflicting, man, I wish there was a solution to that. Like, Just keep adding and adding and adding. Right. The thing that really scares me about those settings too is that they they create this maintenance burden forever. Like it's it's not just that, hey, now you have all these configuration states your product might be in, so you need to support those things and like have it have like sensible things happen, but it's like the next feature you add is gonna interact with those things too. So it becomes like, oh, we gave the users a preference about whether or not their webcam should be on or off. And now we want to add some more functionality to the webcam. Well, what do we do if they defaulted it uh-huh. off? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess. And like, so now you have this, like, they interact with this, these new, this new work that comes down the line. And it becomes this, it's not a one-time cost. It's a ongoing drag Forever on cost. feature development. Yeah. yeah. And those are the scary ones to me. And this, this leads to like the macro cycles, right? a company just gets so bogged down and bloated that they move slowly and you get this stuff like, in the year 2022, Google Docs ships the ability to remove the divider between pages. And in the interim, we've had 50 startups that got rid of that earlier because it could just move faster. But those startups, unless they are doing something fundamentally different, you look at the notions of the world, like they will eventually have that bloat. Notion will be overloaded if they aren't careful to avoid this exact process. And then there will be a new doc management startup 
and they're looking, oh, they're shipping every week. They're, they're making things faster. Look, oh, look at that velocity. It's amazing. I can't believe everything else is so old and, and dusty. Totally. Yeah, they added the thing I asked for in two days. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, but it's so brutal. You have to really, like, to not keep adding stuff, you have to really fight. This was in a long list of, of hindsight 2020 reasons for why my startup didn't work, Spectrum. This was one of them, was we were so responsive to customer requests for features that we just built, built, built. And we ended up a year later with features that we could barely maintain or were perpetually stuck in that V1 state where, yeah, it solved that problem for that one customer that one time. And turns out they probably didn't even care that much, but they just asked for it anyways. So yeah, you're right. I mean, you need so much discipline to say no because most of the time you get a request for something and you squint and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand why someone would want that. Sure, we can build that. Yeah, in the short term, you're rewarded for it. Like, oh, yeah. In the short term, yeah. you're asked for it. Like your customers is like, we want this. We need this. I, I can't use it without this. Like, I, I, I don't want to switch, but I will if you don't build this thing. Uh-huh. But in the long term, you become like the bloated, slow, too complicated, annoying version of the thing. Right. That's trying to do too much. Let's go try this, this hip new startup, like lean version over here from the startup. Yeah. Hard problems. I mean, you can look at examples of companies who seem to have fought back about uh, against this process. They always seem to skew indie, so there might be like a, a ceiling on the size that they can grow to. I think the app Things by Cultured Code comes to mind as one of the most constrained pieces of software that seemingly is still incredibly successful and loved by everyone who uses it. And they just barely add new features. Maybe maybe for them it, it feels like a lot, but every new feature is so carefully considered and thoughtful. I often find myself you know, saying, ah, I wish things did this. I wish things had collaborative lists. I wish things had ways to do more stuff. I look at other to-do list type applications that have added a lot more. Like, man, is things falling behind? No, no, no. They just are way... I haven't talked to them. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect they're just way more disciplined or considered. I don't. I, I would love to talk to someone there and understand how. How do you say no? You must have a million people asking for a million things all the time. How do you say no and end up with what is one of the best pieces of software, in my opinion? Hmm. It's. T- I, I gotta try that. I've heard. I've heard. It's things. very good. <laughs> yeah. I, I just like using good software, so I, even though I'm not in the market for a, a to-do thing, I should check it out. The fact that they're shipping slowly but con- with consideration I think is interesting because I sometimes feel this conflict between let's get a, an, a simple V1 out there that moves things forward, an, incre- you know, an incrementally correct thing. Put, is it better than before? Yeah, it's better than before. Great, ship it. Versus we really thought on this, we showed it to a bunch of users, we've gone through a bunch of iterations, it is fully baked, it's fully formed. It doesn't, it's, it's not a V1 that we're like, we're going to have to come back to, we know we have to come back to to actually make it good, like it's already good. Yeah. You and I are similar in that way. I have the same process, yeah. Much more incremental, get it out the door. Better today than yesterday, ship it. Yeah. But then it's like, I find it requires its own discipline of coming back. 
Like you can ship a crappy version of something if you are going to take the feedback and then go fix it up and move it forward again later. But if you sort of take that as like, yeah, we did the thing. I'm on to the next shiny object. You end up with all these like half-baked answers to things. Like we, our webcam support and Tuple is like a great example of this. In, in what sense? It, it sort of, uh, it was kind of like, we're like, ah, people keep asking us for this. We don't really want it that much, but yeah, let's build a quick and dirty version of it. And so we did. And, and like it's been out, it's been kind of in the quick and dirty state for a long time with like these kind of th- these things about it that bug me. And I'm like, yeah, we, we got to get back to this at some point. But you know, so why haven't you? Why not? Uh, I mean, t- I guess the answer is that it's not quite the most important thing. So maybe that's the right call, you know, like it, it, the crappy V1. That's, you know, if it's not the most important after you get it out, then don't come back to it yet. But important bad. in the context of getting more customers and driving adoption and revenue or important because it clearly is bugging you and you care about quality software and you you know very clearly that this is a part of your product that's not high quality. So it's important in a different way that maybe is just not aligned with what you think of as, I don't know, success or... or right. I mean, that's that's a good point and like actually makes me want to stop building other stuff and just go polish what's there. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, there is optimizing for like, oh hey, this gets us a new market that wasn't, you know, couldn't use our product before or something. Or like, you know, it's it's what more users are asking for. But then there's that like, well, yeah, but am I happy with that? Like, do I like what we're putting out there? I, I think I've discounted that a good bit. One thing that we do on our team at GitHub, which it's still not enough, but it's what we can do right now to push back against this process is usually at the end of every quarter, that the last week of a quarter every project gets put on the sidelines and everyone comes together to fix polish paper cuts type issues. We call it excellence or excellence week. I don't know, you close out 20 paper cuts in that week and that feels pretty good. And then the next quarter you accumulate another 100. But you need something. You need something to just try and revisit past decisions. And so that's why we just open issues for everything. Those issues go on this excellence board. We organize it, triage it, and then at the you know, we all get together for a week. Nothing else matters except let's get through this. This list of things that have been bugging us, but not bugging us enough really to to justify putting it on the roadmap. Yeah, I like that. I could see doing that pretty regularly. The little big things. Yeah, little big things. There you go. Well this has been a lovely chat. I'm really glad you you stopped by to, to talk design with me. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good time. Is there anything you want to point people to while you have their ear? I guess people, if they're interested, can go to my website to learn more about me. And that's basically like the jumping off point to everything I, I work on and make on the internet. Nice. Yeah, it's it, it's the the website is worth checking out. It's a it's an interesting take on a personal website. Which you've <laughs> talked about with other people, so I didn't want to retread here, but it's yeah. it's worth exploring. It was fun to make, yeah. So, yeah, cool, awesome. Uh, well, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. All right, take care.